Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. is Friday, October 15th, 2021. This is Shannon, and today I am here with Stacy and Sarah. The S Brigade is back for a creepy books episode because it's October, and what better to talk about in the fall than creepy books? So we will start out with the usual, usual housekeeping information. Then Stacy will start us off, followed by me, and lastly, Sarah. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. My first creepy book of the night took me a significant amount of time to read because I was so creeped out. And I know, and I would text Shannon and say, oh, I don't know, Shannon, I don't know. And then I'd put it down for a day and then I'd have to pick it up to see what was going to happen next. And then I'd text her again and I'd say, oh, Shannon, I don't know. What's the title? I'm going to be talking to you. If you would have given me one more heartbeat, I would have told you. (laughs) So the first book that I will be discussing tonight is called The Tale of the Vampire Bride, The Tale of the Vampire Bride, book one by Rhiannon Frater. And I love Rhiannon Frater. She's an amazing author. She writes some creepy shit. Um, She wrote a really amazing post-apocalyptic series, As the World Dies. I think we probably talked about it on a post-apocalyptic episode. Um, And she wrote back in, I want to say about 2008, she started this series about the vampire bride. So what I'm going to say before I start the description is that this book has content warnings for days, for days and days and days. So if any type of violence is triggering to you, this is not the book for you. And I don't know how else to say that. There's just, there's a lot that's happening here and a lot that needs to be unpacked. It is 1819. And Lady Glynis Wright and her family are jostling and jouncing their way through the Carpathian, Carpathian Mountains, Carpathian. And they're on the way to meet a potential intended match for Lady Glynis. Now, Lady Glynis is everything that is willful and stubborn and kind of bratty, but also 
strong-willed and independent and very confident that she does not enjoy the strictures of the day. Lady Glynis does not, in fact, want to get married. She actually wants to be a mistress of someone and live a glamorous life. And in fact, if she had her way, she would begin a tryst with Lord Byron. But instead, she is jouncing through the countryside with her mother, her father, her mother, who is Italian, and her British father, who's the who's Earl Wright, the Earl of Wright, Earl of something. He's an Earl at, at any rate. And her younger sister, May, who if she is not swooning, she is about to feel sick and ill. She is not enjoying the carriage ride. Well, due to some circumstances that I shall not discuss, they were unable to stop in the village as was planned. And they wind through the mountains to the castle of her intended. Vlad, Count Dracula. And there Uh. she and her family shall stay as Glennis is supposed to, you know, accept this marriage proposal from this man with whom she's not spent any time. But her parents are very happy about this because... She's had some trouble in English society because of her outspoken and confident ways. Well, they get to the castle and all is not at all what it seems. Not at all. It's very run down for him being such a man of distinction in the area. And there's all these whispers in the halls and around them at night. And she keeps dreaming, does Lady Glynis, of, you know, people like, coming into her bedchamber and actually biting her neck. It's quite odd. And after meeting, after meeting their host, Count Dracula, her parents agree that perhaps he is not suitable for their daughter as a marriage prospect. They feel as though he isn't quite on the up and up, shall we say. So they're going to leave the castle. (laughs) And this, dear readers, is when all hell breaks loose. There's lots of death. There is um, a turning into a creature of the night against Glynis's will. There are violent on-page descriptions of non-consensual sexual acts. And there is a young woman who in her new world is doing her best to retain her humanity despite the fact that her new nature is contrary to all that she's known and understood up until this point. This book is how Lady Glynis figures out how to get away from her captor, her master, her husband, Vlad, Count Dracula. It's a very long book, um, and there are some very, very violent and gory sections of this book. And yet the writing kept me so ensnared. There were several times where I put this book down and said, that's it, I can't can't do anymore. Like, this is a little beyond, like, what I want in a creepy book. This is, like, to me, really, really horrifying, and I don't want this. 
But I had to know if Lady Glynis would be successful in her bid for freedom to live the life that she wants to live without being told when to kill and, you know, who to be with and all the different strictures that she was trying to avoid in her human life. She doesn't want them in her vampire life either. This book is about found family in a sort of horrifying way. It's about learning how to stand up for yourself, how to stand on your own and how to gain and earn, earn and gain respect from those around you. We have glimpses of the vampire society closer to the end of the book, which is kind of fascinating. And um, the, the understanding that we will learn more about other creatures of lore um, as the series progresses. That's all I'm going to say about this book. But it, um, if you like dark, atmospheric, gothic, horrifying, and violent, and ultimately triumphant, you will enjoy this book. So this, again, is The Tale of the Vampire Bride, The Tale of the Vampire Bride, book one, by Rhiannon Freider. It's not I don't know. a Sarah book. No. It's not a Sarah book. Um, uh, it, it's not a Sarah book in the slightest, but it was, like, as I'm talking about it, I feel like I might need to go and pick up book two, but I think I need a little bit more time to recover before I do. So my first book tonight is one that I read back in the beginning of the year. And when I read it, I picked it up just kind of thinking it would be a thriller. Um, I was interviewing the author for the podcast. And so I really wanted to be familiar with the book before I did that. And I, the synopsis made me think it was going to be a thriller. And it sort of was until the end. And then it, it really wasn't. Ooh, um, but oh I my. can't, but I, I can't tell you why. So this is If I Disappear by Eliza Jane Brazier. And this is the story of Sarah, not our Sarah. Oh, what a lovely Sarah. name. Yes. <laughs> and the Sarah that I'm about to talk about is nothing like our Sarah, because this Sarah loves true crime podcasts and our oh, not our sarah <laughs> no <laughs> not me <laughs> no so she loves these podcasts and to her it kind of gives her a, a glimpse into like a darker side of the world. And it's not a side that she particularly enjoys, but she feels like she needs to be aware of it because Sarah knows that women go missing all the time. And she really just wants to be prepared in case something bad should happen to her. But something bad doesn't happen to her. It actually ends up happening to the host of one of these true crime podcasts that she has become rather addicted to. And now Sarah is determined to learn the truth about what happened to this woman named Rachel. So she goes to this really disturbing, terrible ranch in Northern California. And this is the ranch where Rachel grew up. And she thinks that since this was the last place that she knew Rachel to be, this is like sort of where she has to start her search. 
But once she reaches the ranch, it becomes clear that there is so much more going on here than she ever imagined because Rachel wasn't the first woman to have disappeared from this ranch. Um, I don't even know how to tell you about this ranch. Like it is one of the most creepily like atmospheric places I've read about in a very long time. It's one of those books that the whole way the author sets the scene just gives you this feeling of dread and you, you don't, you don't really understand why you just know that like nothing good will come to these characters when they're doing the things that they're doing and they're visiting the places that they're visiting. And this is how I, I felt when Sarah was at this ranch. Um, I can't tell you why I felt like that. I can't explain to you like what's wrong with it because anything that I say would kind of give you a hint into what's actually going on. And I, I don't want to do that. But this is such a disturbing little book wrapped up in like what makes you think it's going to be a twisty thriller. And it is very twisty, but not necessarily in the ways that you will be expecting. Um, if you like your endings tied up pretty neatly, this isn't the book for you. Um, when I was talking to the author, I asked her a question about the ending and she kind of laughed and told me that there were times when she wasn't even a hundred percent sure like, how it ended. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> so this is If I Disappear by Eliza Jane Brazier. Can we switch from talking about vampires and creepy ranches and talk a little bit about something that in most lore are beautiful creatures. Can we talk about some mermaids? Yeah. Look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? These mermaids I wouldn't sing that. No, oh, I don't think don't. these mermaids would sing very nicely. They would oh. sing, look at this flesh. Isn't it great? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, yes. So for anyone who's really not sure what I'm talking about... My first book tonight is Into the Drowning Deep, Rolling in the Deep, book one by the amazing Mira Grant. And I read this book, not really knowing much about it, to be honest, but knowing it was Mira Grant. So anything that she writes is amazing. But I screamed a couple times out loud in my bed and woke up my family. Um, so it is the story of a crew of people who are on this boat and they go to film kind of a tongue-in-cheek mockumentary right over the Mariana Trench in uh, about like sea creatures from the deep. But the entire crew of the boat disappears. And some people think it's a hoax. Some people think thinks some people think it was the sea creatures, but there is somebody who is very driven to find out the answers, and her name is Victoria Stewart. And Victoria Stewart is the sister of one of the people on the crew, one of the mockumentary filmers. And it's now been seven years, and a new ship and a new crew are going to explore that area of the ocean. 
And they're going to kind of talk a little bit about the Mariana Trench and what's down there. And, you know, could it have been something, not just a hoax? Like they didn't just all go off to a desert island to drink pina coladas. And because that <laughs> is one of the theories. And so there are um, several different people. There is um, Victoria and there are these really cool twins. Um, of course they're and, cool. They're twins. Yes. And they're deaf. And one of them likes to go down. Well, I think they both do in their submarine and really neat, like cool twins. And there's a pretty big cast of characters in this book. And when they get there on their boat, things start happening. I can't really give too many details because it will ruin. It will ruin the plot of this book, which is terrifying. But this is what I'm going to tell you. Okay. Because I think about it now whenever my family and I go to the beach. Because when I used to think <laughs> of mermaids, I thought of like beautiful people with like, like smiling faces and scaly fins and, or, you know, shimmery fins and like, oh, it'd be kind of cool to be friends with a mermaid. Seashells and, is, ears yes, and beautiful seashell. voices. Yes. And even the mermen, you know, it'd be like, ooh, clasped in their fishy arms. It would be wonderful. <laughs> but these mermaids, this is what I'm going to tell you. They have teeth, like lots of teeth. It's really horrifying. And there's a very horrifying, terrible scene that made me scream. It was so scary. And I won't say anything, but it made me very claustrophobic and scared. And um, it's just, I know that um, compared to Stacey and Shannon, I'm being a little more vague about this book, but I really can't say much without giving spoilers. And I don't want to do that because... I think this book really needs to be read to be experienced. You can't like know too much going into it or it will ruin all of the wildness of this, of this story. So just trust me and pick up into the drowning deep rolling in the deep book one by the amazing Mira Grant. I feel like I need to read this. I learned a thing about Mira Grant slash Seanan McGuire the other day. What? She has she- another pseudonym. What? She does? Yes. So apparently she also writes as A. Deborah Baker. What? And the, she has two books out that are part of a series. The first one being Over the Woodward Wall. Ooh. And the second one being Along the Saltwise Sea. What? Are they yes. fantasy? I'm assuming they- fantasy. They're like horror-esque, I guess. So I remember when I first talked on this podcast about Wendy Webb. And this was like back in like the infancy of Book Bistro. Wendy Webb, when I read The Fate of Mercy Alden. Well, when I read The End of Temperance Dare, I was alone in my house and it was a nice fall day. And it was not dark outside as of yet. And as I was reading, I ran around and turned on all the lights in my living room because I was so frightened. That book scared me. And it took me, it took me a really long time, a really, really long time to stop thinking about some of the scenes in that book. And the writing was so immersive and so great. And so I always look forward to Wendy Webb because of that. So on today's episode, I'm going to talk about her most recent book that just came out, 
Oh gosh, within the last like couple weeks. And that's the Keepers of Metzenvalo. And again, this is by Wendy Webb. And this book is about Annalise or Annie, as she is called. And Annie is coming home to an island on Lake Superior. Of course. To the home, of course. And it's to the home of her beloved, beloved grandmother who has died. And the entire family, so she and her twin brother, they're very sort of like woo-woo mother. (laughs) Her mother's sister and family, they're all joining together at Metzenvalo to hear the will of Moma, Momo, whatever the, her name was, but she was Momo. the grandmother. Mo, I think it's Moma. It's, it's Finnish. Um, they, they have Finnish ancestry. And so they all gather, but you know, they don't all gather typically together because there's some sort of like issues within the family, some tensions, some different things. And they all gather. But Annie and her brother get there first to the house. And Annie and her twin were very close with their grandmother. Um, They stayed with her every summer during childhood, um, along with Martin and Mary, who were sort of like the the people that keep Metz and Vallo running smoothly all the time, every day. And they just have so many good memories of childhood and their beloved grandmother. And one thing that they remember very fondly were the folk tales that she told them about the people of the forest and the water and the different things that they would get up to. And they, you know, even in in adulthood, even though some of the memories have dimmed a bit, they've never forgotten how much they loved curling up with their grandmother and listening to these, to these amazing tales of Finnish folklore. Well, now she's passed away and this whole family is back under one roof. And from the beginning, some kind of odd things begin to happen. And Annie keeps kind of questioning, you know, did that happen like I think it did? Or is this just my mind? I'm tired. I'm worried about everything. I'm missing my grandmother. Like what, what is real? And then when the family gathers for the will, some sort of surprising things are revealed by their grandmother in her will and by the handsome young lawyer who's there to oversee the reading of the will. And as everyone is sort of off in their own corners, kind of recovering from the conflict, things begin to happen within and without of Metzenvalo that cause even more angst and conflict and concern. And what is causing these things? Is it caused by living, breathing members of the disgruntled, disgruntled members of the family? Or is it caused by the people of the forest and the water and the animals and everything surrounding Metzenvalo? And that is what Annie is going to have to figure out as she navigates through all of the dynamics of a conflict-ridden family and you know, very diverse personalities. And that's all I'm going to tell you about this book. I will tell you that to me, this book was more atmospheric. Um, The writing was as lovely as ever, as ever, but 
at no point did I feel like, oh my God, I have to keep the lights on, like temperance stairs coming up behind me. Like it didn't have the feel of terror of some of her earlier books, but it was quite lovely. And it sort of read like an older sort of almost like an Agatha Christie where you're like, what is happening? Who done it? Like, you know, why are all these things happening? Is it the family? Is it something else? It sounds like um, a Phyllis A. Whitney book. Oh, like they go back yeah, to Phyllis it, Whitney. Yeah. It did have some great sort of Gothic feeling elements. Um, I always, the thing that to me that Wendy Webb always captures so well is just, she makes Lake Superior into a character in its own right. It is like a living, breathing part of every book. She I makes ever want to go there. Cause like terrible things. I know terrible things know. happen beneath the waves and her, but, but yet then she describes like these islands and these towns. And even though some terrifying things happen in those areas, they sound like such beautiful places to visit. So if you want something that is atmospheric and moody and Gothic and, you know, just on the edge of being slightly worrisome at times in terms of its creepiness, I would encourage you to pick up The Keepers of Metzenvalo by Win- Wendy Webb. I grew up with a lot of the, like, older Gothic books, like Victoria Holt yeah, me and too. Phyllis Whitney, Madeline Brent. Oh, Madeline mm-hmm. Brent. Um, just, like, they're so much atmosphere in in all of those and I think Wendy Webb is a little bit reminiscent of of some of those this book especially reminded me of one of those so my next book does a little bit of a similar thing in that you have a lot of questions about what is responsible for some of the things that are happening so I'm going to tell you about My Sweet Girl by Amanda Jayatisa. And this came out at the beginning of September. Um, she is a Sri Lankan author. And one of the coolest things about this book um, is that part of it takes place in Sri Lanka. So it's kind of a dual timeline. And our main character is a young woman named Paloma who spent the first like 12 years of her life in an orphanage in Sri Lanka. And she is eventually adopted by this wealthy white family who you don't ever fully know like what their intentions were. Like it's obvious that they want a child, but like for what, like what, what prompted them to go to Sri Lanka and adopt So Paloma has always sort of thought that the best part of her life was like waiting around the corner. That once she was adopted, everything was going to be perfect for her. All the hardships that she'd experienced in the orphanage, like that would just kind of be in the past. Like everything would be fantastic. And in a lot of ways, that was true. She went to good schools. She had a ton of opportunities that she wouldn't have had had she stayed in Sri Lanka. But it never really quite clicked. Like there was something about this whole situation that the Paloma felt a little bit apart from. And so she couldn't, she couldn't settle in the way she wanted and the way her parents wanted her to. 
So we meet her when she's 30 and she has recently been cut off from her parents' funds for a reason that we don't know in the beginning of the book. And so she decides that she needs a roommate. She's going to rent out the second bedroom of her apartment. And she ends up, yes. And so she ends up renting her bedroom to another, another person from Sri Lanka. And she thinks, you know, okay, like she can make a difference for somebody who came from, you know, her country. And maybe this is kind of what she needs to like get back on her feet. But it becomes clear to Paloma pretty quickly that this person that she rented the room to is not who he seems to be. And that he knows some things about Paloma's past that she doesn't want anyone to know. And when he shows up dead this is a huge problem um for all kinds of reasons it's a huge problem (laughs) a huge problem because you see she calls the police but when the police like show up there's no body (gasps) anymore and she can't explain why like she doesn't understand why she saw the body she ran away she called the police the body disappeared. Like how, how did that happen? So now she is afraid to stay in her apartment. She returns home to the house where she lived with her parents after she was adopted. And she's trying to piece together like what really happened. But as she's piecing this together, she is forced to re-examine her past, the time that she spent in Sri Lanka and some really unsettling events that took place there. Um, And what the reader does not know until the end is whether these events were supernatural or are they brought about by an actual like human being that's that's living. Um, And I can't tell you the answer to that, obviously, but what I will tell you is that Jayatisa does a phenomenal job of building the tension like it's slow it's painstaking and with every bit of this book that you read the atmosphere grows like thicker and darker and more oppressive and you know that something very bad is going to happen but you don't know like where it will come from how it will manifest um this is her debut novel and it is utterly utterly spellbinding um it's it's hard to categorize it's a thriller it's a coming of age novel it's an own voices story that looks at like old sri lankan mythology and folklore it's just, it's one of the best things i've read in quite a while and I'm so glad it was recommended to me by a couple of authors and I'm so glad that I picked it up. So this is My Sweet Girl by Amanda Jayatisa. I just want to know what happens to the body. I'm sure we um, find out, Stacey. If we read I'm the sure book, we'd have we'll to read out. it. Yes. Yes, you would. You know what? It's is like very Sarah? worth reading if you're, you know, like looking for something like something different, but yeah. you would have to be like clear, like definitely in the mood for sort of the horror, like thrillery 
experience. Um, so probably not a Stacy Sarah book. You know what is Stacy Sarah though? No, but you will tell us. Zombies. Oh, oh yes. zombies, yes. Um Let's talk about zombies. Yes. Yeah. And shockingly, we're not talking about Sarah Lyons Fleming tonight when we talk about zombies. That's for the first so. time ever. But you know, I know. We've talked about her. I even said to Shannon, I wish I hadn't talked about World Departed because I know. I could have talked about that, but no. I know. But you know who else should deserve some love? Um, very, very, very different writing from Sarah Lyons Fleming, but Adrian Lecter. Oh, wrote a series called Green Fields. And it is the story of Dr. Brianna Lewis. And Brie works in a, I'm going to say it wrong because it's very sciencey. She (laughs) works in like a cell lab, like a cellular, like she's into like the cells. I don't, I, I am blanking on the, on the the kind of doctor that she is at the like moment. Like molecular biology type of doctor? Yeah. Well, yes, but she does like, she, she studies like the structures of, um, like she worked with like, she, it was funny because she actually worked with like, um, the coronavirus was mentioned. I read oh. this like in the height of the pandemic, but it was, oh my God, so like, did I. <laughs> I was, I, it was written before the pandemic. So it was just kind of crazy. Yes. Years before, but Brie, Brie Lewis, Dr. Brie Lewis is, um, she is just wanting some coffee on this late Friday afternoon. It's most people have left the lab. There's like a, a flu going around and People are kind of dropping like flies. So they they're going home and she just wants a cup of coffee as one does when they're trying to finish up a project late on a Friday night. They just want some coffee and she goes to get coffee and suddenly terrorists blow up all the entrances of the building that she's in. Um. And she's like, what? I just wanted coffee. I just want coffee. But then she and she gets kind of rounded up with a few other people and held hostage. But the worst part about it is she knows the leader of these terrorist people because she's been sleeping with him for a few months. Um, and she's like, "What cheating? What is wow. on her girlfriend? Cheating on you- her girlfriend with this man?" Whoa. Well, yes. Well, her girlfriend was cheating on her, too. It was kind of an unhealthy relationship. But she is like, what is happening? And then she starts to learn that there is a virus that people are trying to release into the world, part of which is stored in part of her part of the lab that she works in. She she's like, I don't even understand how this is happening. And so she has to go into the lab with, you know, this, this man who now she has found out has lied to her, Nate and like destroy this virus, but things are happening and zombies are happening. And she just doesn't know who she can trust. And this book is 
I think for some people, it's kind of like a slow introduction into the Greenfield, Greenfield's world. Um, it's a, a book where she's really setting up and doing a lot of world building. So unlike a lot of books where the zombie apocalypse is kind of like the beginning part of the book and you see everything fall, you don't really see a lot about the zombies until closer to the end because Adrian Lecter is setting up enough of the story so that you can get a little bit of an idea of why this virus is around, what's happening. And it's really a, a phenomenal series. I will tell you, Bree is not my favorite character. She, um, and neither is Nate, but for some reason, I had to read all 12 of these books. I could not stop. I could not do anything else. I had to read every book and I, I, I had to. So they're very compelling characters. Um, they're not characters that I necessarily can identify with being kind of the sensitive soul that I am. They're, they're very tough. But Adrian Lecter does a brilliant job crafting this post-apocalyptic world and it is freaky and the zombies can run. And then there's like all of these changes that happen and changes with people who are alive. And there is way more to this series than just hungry, flesh eating, brainless dead. It's a wonderful series. It is very gory. It is very violent. Um, there is a love woven throughout the books that I really appreciated. If you want to read a very gritty, exciting, violent. I do. Yes. Dark. It's dark. And it's a very unique take on the apocalypse, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I agree. And she, she really crafts it well. You will not be able to stop. This is not a series where you could either A, pick up in the middle or B, skip a book. Or C, stop before it's over. I could not. So the first book is called Incubation. Greenfields, number one, by Adrian Lecter. Really good. Really scary. I agree. I um, At the start of the pandemic in 2020, for some reason, I found it very helpful to binge post-apocalyptic fiction. <laughs> Me too. And I don't know why, but it, you know that's not why we're here tonight to go into our twisted up psyches, but I, I picked up this book. I'd been looking at it for quite a while. I picked up the series. I'd read very mixed reviews. And so I was a little hesitant to try it, but if you like a very complex world with very raw and flawed characters who yes. yet have a very interesting code of ethics and um, you know, there's this very, very raw love story at the heart of it. That's very kind of slow burn. Um, there's a lot of good um, character growth. Um, she really develops some interesting side characters. It's not all just running from the zombies. It's trying to no. figure out how to live in a world that's been completely decimated and knowing, knowing from pretty early on how that world has been decimated and what is causing all the issues that have been happening. Um, and it's, I don't know. I really, it was a very compelling series for me. So I was really quite fortunate and lucky 
that I was able to get an arc of the final book, the final book in the Trad Street series by Karen White. And it's called The Attic on Queen Street. Oh, The Attic. But, you know, I'm not going to tell you about the end of the series because that would be heinously terrible. And I'm not someone to spoil a series for you. So I'm going to go back to the beginning of the Trad Street series by Karen White. And I'm just going to tell you a little bit about The House on Trad Street by Karen White. This book is about Melanie Middleton. She is a realtor. She is type A times 52. And her goal is always to be the top of the leaderboard at her real estate office and to make the most sales and to be the best she can be. She had a very screwed up upbringing with parents that did a lot of damage to her in different ways. And so she has a lot of trouble now in her late thirties making lasting connections with people, but she's a damn fine realtor. And if you want a house, she's going to get it for you and she's going to sell it to you. And she's going to be on that leaderboard at the top every month. Damn it. Well, then she goes to a house. She makes an appointment, goes to this house on Trad Street where there is an old man and he talks to her about his house And he talks about how history is something you can hold in the palm of your hand. And he talks about his house. But she's a little unnerved by his house. For as she's walking into the garden, she sees a young woman in the garb of a different time standing by a swing. And Melanie, at that point, we begin to learn that for her entire life, she's been ignoring the fact that she can see those who have passed on. She ignores them with all of her might. She lives a very mundane existence in a very sterile condo. She wants nothing to do with old houses, nothing. She actually hates them. She tries her best to only like go into and sell the new houses. That is until the older gentleman in the house that she was visiting very frustratedly unable to get him to sell his house. He passes away and leaves Melanie Middleton, his ancient house on Trad Street. And from this point begins a series about a woman who starts out with very little in her life, slowly taking on different um, cases where she's selling different homes And each home has a ghostly tale from a different time to tell her. Each home has something that's a mystery that needs to be solved. And only Melanie can solve it because only Melanie can speak to the departed. Each book kind of gives you more information about who Melanie is and why she's the way she is. We learn more about her parents. And we meet a very, very lovely, handsome man named Jack, who will be quite a part of her life moving forward, but it won't be an easy road. And the whole way through, Melanie is having to make repairs to her Trad Street home because even if she doesn't want to live in this house, this house desperately wants her to live there, to tell its stories, to share its secrets. And that's all I'm going to say about it. But, you know, if you want a wonderful series that was just completed, And the final book, the final chapter of Melanie's story was just told. Pick up the Trad Street series by Karen White, starting with The House on Trad Street. 
And do make sure if you have read this series that you know that early in November, I think it's the second, the final book in the series, The Attic on Queen Street will be released. But not to fear, she will have a spinoff series that's been so popular that will be taking place in New Orleans that will start coming out next year. I, I love this series. It makes me really happy. It's not, you know, parts of it are just lovely. There's some historical fiction elements to it. There's a very slow burn romance. There's a lot of... um very um, convoluted family dynamics to navigate. There's some found family and it's just a very gorgeous story. And every so often peppered, you know, throughout everything else, there's a truly terrifying ghost that Melanie has to vanquish. And so it's just, it's, I know, but it's really worth reading. So start with the house on Tradster. You have to read this series in order. It's not one you can jump around in. Um, And I think you'll really enjoy it by Karen White. I love Karen White. I know. I love her too. She, Oh, she really can tell a story. <laughs> I need to read this series. I've never read it. I don't know why. So my next book, I was debating between a couple of different things, but this is When the Reckoning Comes by mm. Latanya McQueen. The name sounds, sounds scary on itself. Yes, it is, it is very scary. So this is... The story of, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this. Okay, so this is the story of Mira. And Mira is a Black woman who has grown up in this town that is haunted in more ways than one by some events that took place at an old plantation back in the antebellum South. And for all, like as long as she can remember, Mira has been told that her ancestors were slaves on this plantation and that some really terrible things happened to them there. And that basically it is her kind of lot in life to be the best that she can be and to sort of, like rise above all of the hardship that her family has experienced. And for a while, like Mira has but no pressure. Has, right. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, you know, do it. It's fine. And for a while, Mira did that, but eventually things changed for her and she and her two best friends, um, Jesse, who is, a boy that Mira has some complicated feelings for and Celine who is a white girl who feels more comfortable with Mira and Jesse than she does with other white people and this causes a lot of a lot of hardship for Celine something happens between the three of them one summer afternoon And it causes Mira and Jesse to venture out onto the plantation grounds without Celine. And something happens there. And it is this terrible thing that happens that will haunt Mira for the next like 10 years or so. So 10 years after this really alarming event occurred, Mira is returning home for Celine's wedding 
they're not really friends anymore. They haven't talked in years, but there's still a part of Mira that feels like she owes something to Celine. That like if someone was your childhood best friend, you really need to be there for their wedding. But Mira is appalled to learn that Celine is getting married at this plantation house that has been refurbished and like turned into this really terrible resort that is sort of <laughs> glorifying the slave holding South. There are all these like terrible awful. reenactments of like slaves oh. doing certain like tasks throughout the plantation. Um, there are these drinks that have names from like the antebellum South. Um, it just basically turns all of the the pain and suffering that Black people experienced because of slavery into kind of a kitschy, like, money-making, like, theme park sort of thing. Shannon, I don't like that. No. And Mira cannot understand why Celine is getting married here. Like, why would she support this? But as she spends time kind of against her will at this plantation, she begins to see flashes of things that happened back when the plantation was like a working plantation. And she starts to realize that there's a reason that she's been brought back here and that there are spirits on these grounds that are ready for vengeance and that they will not rest until justice is served or until the reckoning comes. So I can't tell you like how this plays out. Obviously I can't tell you who is responsible for what and how all of these people are linked, but this is a really interesting look at slavery at like the ways in which people who were not alive during those times are still connected Um, we don't escape our pasts even if there are elements of our pasts that we don't fully like understand or acknowledge Um, and yet it does this in a very entertaining readable way that is perfect for this kind of chilly fall season that we're in so this is when the reckoning comes by latanya mcqueen and i think i need this it's pretty alarming i enjoyed it can we talk about sunshine um, we could. Sure. I mean, not sunshine like during the daylight, but sunshine, sunshine like sunshine the person by like no Dorinda Jones, no okay. sunshine by Robin McKinley. Oh yes. Oh, I so, love this book so much. I'm actually, to be totally transparent, rereading this book right now, and it is so good. And so interesting and it gets incredibly creepy because vampires in this, in this world are very creepy. So let's talk about sunshine. She's a young woman who is a baker. She has some magic, but she's kind of forgotten that she has magic. 
She lives in a world that is a lot like our world. Um, a lot of culture is referenced that happened. Like they like to watch movies like Westerns and stuff like that. And they eat food that we would eat in our world. But the world is different. So they spent 10 years in this world fighting in what they call the voodoo wars. And yes. And there are like many, many supernatural creatures, but really the big three are like the where who um, really only cause trouble like once a month, but they're, they're pretty contained. They're okay. They, they can handle it. And um, also the vampires and the vampires are very creepy. They are human like, but they don't move like humans. They don't talk like humans and they don't smell like humans. Oh, they have kind of like a fresh blood smell, but it's not Ooh. like, no, but it's not like bad blood. It's, it's just like this coppery and they move like really fast and you can't look at their eyes because they will charm you into letting them eat you or, you know, suck your blood, drain you dry. And Sunshine knows all of this. There's a whole other faction too. And I'm sorry, I can't remember right now because they're not as like huge of a part of the book as like the vampires. But Sunshine gets kind of fed up with her family And kind of just fed up. And she decides that she's going to go drive down by a lake near their house in the evening and sit on this porch of this deserted cabin and kind of have a little quiet time away from her family. Well, when she does that, she gets taken by a gang of vampires and forced to walk barefoot across this uneven ground. So it cuts up her feet. They make her change her clothes and put on this kind of like diaphanous, like blood red gown. And they then take her into this crumbling mansion on the lake and they serve her up basically to a vampire who's shackled to the wall. And she is also shackled to the wall and she can't get away from him and he can't get away from her. And she thinks like, okay, this is it. Like I'm toast. I'm going to get eaten. You know, this was a great life. And he says to her all of a sudden out of the blue, talk to me, remind me, remind me of humanity. And so she starts talking to him, but she's terrified because, you know, she thinks she's going to be dinner and they go all through the night and he doesn't eat her. And then the sun comes and he says, this is the hardest time for me. Can you tell me a story? And she tells him a story of Beauty and the Beast. So, I mean, of course, this is like my favorite book of all time. (laughs) And (laughs) so she helps him make it through the day and through the sun that makes him like insane. And then the next night, these awful vampires come back and like slash her so she'll bleed and like basically throw her in his lap. And he does not, he does not eat her or suck her blood or whatever. He doesn't. And so Sunshine, her name is actually Ray, but everybody calls her Sunshine. Sunshine helps him escape. And 
And they kind of form this very tenuous bond, which is strange in this kind of off kilter, creepy world. And there are a lot of other creepy aspects to this book that I can't talk about because it will ruin the book, but they be, they kind of form this tenuous bond and they are very vastly different creatures. And I mean, when she describes him the first time, he's not like a beautiful sparkly vampire, you know, he's been deprived of blood for many days, his skin, um, to quote the book is the color of those mushrooms that you leave in the back of your fridge. And then you don't really know what to do with them. Um, I know he does not sound very appealing, but they, throughout the book, she is asked then, even though she's just a baker to work with, um, this organization, a human organization to like bring down vampires and like get rid of them and stuff because she managed to survive a vampire attack. But what she doesn't tell anybody is that she's also working with the vampire Constantine behind the scenes to help him get rid of his enemy, who is the one who chained both of them in this mansion. So this book to me is so beautiful and very kind of lyrical and not poetic, but just like she writes like these word pictures and she develops this really fascinating world that is enough like ours that like we can identify, but yet it's slightly different. It's like if this world was a slightly different reality, this is what would have happened. And there are some very creepy, like the vampires are creepy. Like if you tell them your name, if you look at their eyes, if they breathe on you, their breath, like it can make you basically very compliant. And so they are not, it is not like a book where like the vampires are compelling. They are not compelling, but yet she and Constantine develop a very beautiful friendship in this book. And they have to work together to get rid of this faction of vampires, but there are other aspects of the plot as well so it could almost be fantasy it could almost be urban fantasy i wanted to talk about it and i felt like there were enough parts of it that were creepy to say that we could call this a creepy book um if you want to read a great book with a really compelling storyline and beautiful words pick up sunshine by robin mckinley it is wonderful oh i might have to reread it like right now robin i'm having magical she really is. I'm, I'm really having fun reading it. So my final book tonight, dear listeners, is the first in a series. And I binged this series until I had to be a responsible adult and put them down so I could read the rest of Vampire Bride. But it's what I did when I had to take a break <laughs> from the world of Lady Glynis. And this series is dark. Well, it, the series is Experiment in Terror. Oh. And uh, the first book is Dark House. It's by Karina Holly. And this woman is like all over the map in what she writes, like everywhere. I mean, she writes like some young adult stuff, some like just contemporary, some vampires, some like darker. I mean, she's all over the place. And I think she just has a talent for telling a damn good story. And this series is about Perry. Perry's 22. She had a very, very, very rough growing up time. 
in her family. She just was always kind of prickly and just sort of, oh, just kind of out of step. And then as a teenager, she, you know, kind of went kind of deeply into the drug scene and had a lot of issues and uh, had to visit with psychologists and, you know, it wasn't until she went off to college where she felt like, okay, I'm, I'm on my own now. I can, you know, maybe I can make my family proud of me. I have a younger sister who looks up to me. I need to make my family proud. So she goes into advertising and she's graduated from college. She's been looking for a job. All her parents want for her is for her to have a career and have a good job and have a good life. But here she is at almost 23 living at home with her family. And she is a receptionist in Portland, Oregon. And to add insult to injury, she's working as a receptionist in the advertising agency. She's not even like working in advertising. She's not doing any marketing. She's the receptionist and she's a terrible receptionist. She hates her job. She hates answering the phone. And every so often she has these panic attacks that no one's supposed to talk about. All her family wants is for her to like figure her shit out. And frankly, she feels really bad that she's living at home. She has horrible body image issues. Um, Her mother was a Swedish model and she's like, you know, tall and slender and gorgeous. Her younger sister takes after her mother. Um, She was significantly, Perry was overweight in high school. And even though, even though that's no longer the case, her, her poor body image issues have followed her into adulthood along with these other issues that she faces. Well, one weekend, she and her family go to visit her father's brother, her uncle, and her twin cousins along the coast. And they live in this lovely home and her, her, her cousins are these like 19-year-old sort of like pot-smoking teenage kids. And her <laughs> uncle... Um, you know, is just sort of like living like this, like kind of lost bachelor lifestyle. And on his property, there's this like old decrepit lighthouse that for whatever reason, Perry just finds kind of interesting. And as she's wandering around this lighthouse after dark, as one does, abandoned lighthouse where light has not been lit in like 80 years. P.S. As she's wandering around and getting herself all creeped out, she runs into this kind of shady character named Dex. And Dex convinces her to like go into this, well, they're in this lighthouse together and a lot of things happen in this lighthouse. And she shares the photos that she took online her her younger sister i am sorry i'm like all over the place her younger sister has a blog she's gotten ill and so she asks perry to like take over her blog for a few days and perry's like i don't know what the hell to write like i'm a receptionist i live with my parents i'm like you know I don't, i'm not into fashion i wear like doc martens and old band t-shirts and i'm so I she like decides doc martens. i do too but like you know so she decides instead of writing about fashion she's gonna write about this experience that she had along the oregon coast And it goes viral, you guys. Like, people are really interested in her story. And so she is approached by Dex to see if she'd be willing to start a new ghost hunting show with him for a company called ShowNet. And the show would be called Experiment in Terror. And then they would go and, like, record, you know, different different things. So this first book is about 
when they go back to the lighthouse on her uncle's property and the wackadoodle things that happened to Perry in this lighthouse as they are trying to solve the mystery. Now, Perry, as the series progresses, um, there's going to be like 55,000 tons of character development. Um, Dex and Perry both have a lot to work through. Um, there's just a lot going on for both. They're very flawed characters. Um, there's so much to unpack in this series and it is, I love it. Every book focuses on a different place where they, a different haunted place where they have to go in and kind of do a show and talk about it. This is a really good series. It was written. um, I believe the first book was written back in like, I want to say like 2010. Um, There's some really terrifying um, supernatural forces that come into play within the series And as we get farther in, we learn more and more about Perry and why she's able to see ghosts and how long this has actually been happening in her life. We learn more about Dex, too, and he's sort of someone who I would call an antihero. Now, the thing I will tell you, the one problematic thing for me about this series is some of the language that is used. Um, The word retarded is frequently used um, in a derogatory manner. And um, if you're able to get past that, which was pretty difficult for me, um, this is a really good series with a lot of horror and terror and romance and character development and all the good things about something that's sort of straddling the line between romance, urban fantasy, and horror. So this, again, is Dark House, Experiment in Terror, book one by Karina Holly. And I know I was all over the place when I was talking about this book. But um, I'm trying to keep this as spoiler-free as possible, and it's causing me pain not to squee all about so many aspects (laughs) of this, but I'm trying to keep it to what we knew in the very first book, which wasn't much. So hard sometimes. It is. (laughs) I know. I got to book six and, like, just, I mean, I binged the series. And there were, like, eight, right? Oh no, there's like 11 and I'm sure okay. like, and then there's a, um, there's a spinoff series that I cannot think of what it's called, but it's about her younger sister. Oh, mm-hmm. her artist trilogy, which starts with sins and needles, needles is uh-huh. beyond one of my, like, it's on one of my oh, list of like top romances ever. Okay. So the author of my last book has consistently terrified me with oh, no. every book she's written. Um, I'm going to say that this is real world terror, not supernatural terror. Oh, dear. Um, so, you know, if that's not something you're up for, then this is not a book that you will enjoy. Not a Sarah this, book. No. no, definitely not. <laughs> this is Dark Roads by Chevy Stevens and I was so so excited to see that this was coming out because she has not had a book out since 2017 and I was just so glad to see that she's still writing and this book although I hated to wait for it was well worth the time it took her to write it so Dark Roads is set in British Columbia And it centers around this 500-mile 
stretch of road known as the Cold Creek Highway. And somewhere along this road is a small town, which is called Cold Creek. And this is where Haley, Haley McBride has made her home. And her father is kind of a survivalist. He taught her all kinds of things about living off the land and kind of, you know, staying under people's radar, off the grid, however you want to, to define it. And so when he dies, she goes to live with her aunt and her aunt's like boyfriend turned husband, like he's kind of a yuckety individual. And he is a police officer. And he seems to be investigating a series of disappearances along the Cold Creek Highway. And for decades, women have disappeared from this long, lonely stretch of road. And it's kind of common knowledge that if you're a woman alone, like you don't want to be on this road. But so many women have gone missing here and so few of them have been found. Even fewer have been like their their disappearances have never been solved. Um, the criminals are unknown. So something bad happens to Haley, and I can't tell you what that is. But as a result, she disappears into the wilderness along the Cold Creek Highway, and it is her hope that people will think that she is just another young woman who has gone missing here. And we don't know much more than that for a while. We just know that she's gone. We skip forward a year and we meet Beth. And Beth has come to Cold Creek to find out what happened to her sister who was living there and who went missing. Um, we find out pretty quickly that she was murdered, but initially um, Beth thinks that her sister has just gone missing and she's hoping to find her. Well, Beth quickly realizes that there are some very nasty things going on, not only in Cold Creek, but in the area surrounding it. And she finds some clues that lead her to believe that Haley knows more than she's telling, not just about what happened to Beth's sister, but that she may have some information about these overall disappearances. But Haley is gone, right? Like she has disappeared into the wilderness. Some people think she's dead. Um, there's just not a lot of information that can be found about her. And so Beth decides that she's going to try to find out what she can, not only about her sister, but about Haley too. Um, this is terrifying, I think, because we hear a lot about Indigenous women who go missing in Canada and how they're their disappearances are not investigated the way the disappearances of white women are. And although this story is the story of two white women, it sheds some light on this like really rugged 
territory and how how easy it is for people to disappear here, whether it is like, you know, something that they've planned to do or whether it is against their will. Um, this is another one of those books where you read and you just know that bad things are happening. You just don't know like how they will happen or when, but you know they will. Chevy Stevens is such an accomplished writer. Her first book, Still Missing, is literally one of the most terrifying things I have ever read. Um, and Natalia, who reads a lot of really scary things just kind of on the regular, um, will tell you that this book deeply, deeply disturbed her. Um, but this is Dark Roads. This is her newest book, and I highly recommend it. But definitely, you know, pay attention to kind of your own comfort level. And if you're not comfortable with things that could happen in the real world, then this might not be the best book for you. But it's Dark Roads by Chevy Stevens. And I am so glad that it's finally here. So I love all the books I talked about tonight, but I really saved my favorite for last. Thank you. <laughs> Alex, my brother, and thank you, Stacy, my sister, for saying we should all read a post-apocalyptic a, a, a post apocalyptic <laughs> series. <laughs> it's Peter Piper picked a pick of pickle peppers, post-apocalyptic series together so we can all talk about it. And my, my sister tried to read this book last year and she was like, ugh. He's like, so like, I don't like how he writes about women. I don't like a lot about this book. I'm just not doing it. And then my brother, she mentioned it to my brother because she liked the premise. And my brother's like, you just got to read and give it a chance. He's not, you just really have to give this a chance. I love it. And so I picked up Adrian's Undead Diary written by Chris Philbrook. And the first book is called Dark Recollections. And it starts off, Adrian Ring leads a very simple life. He is the dorm supervisor, third shift for a kind of snooty, like, prep type school where you know they stay on campus and it's very you know prestigious and snotty and he's the overnight supervisor um for the dorms and and he makes sure the kids are okay overnight and he also um lives with his girlfriend cassie during the day and he is just kind of this simple simple guy so you think he used to be in the military. He made it almost all the way through ranger school. We'll talk more about that after you read more of the books. And jeez, oh, so he goes to work one night and things seem normal. But then he starts hearing like these strange things about like aggressive people who like bite you. So people are like biting each other and acting all aggressive across the whole world. And he is like, this is fake. Like, what is this even happening? But um, as he's driving home, 
and his his girlfriend Cassie is leaving for work. They talk to each other and he's like, you know, you might want to be careful. I don't know. I watched some weird videos today. So he gets home and he goes to sleep and he sleeps till about 3 p.m. And he wakes up because he hears a gunshot. He's like, and you know, that's not really commonplace, you know, in his little condo complex to hear a gunshot. So he goes and looks outside and there's like a decapitated nurse, like just like laying in his parking lot. And he's like, what the heck? And so he is like, uh, he's starting to take it more seriously that something really like not right is going on. So he packs up his guns and his ammo and food. He brings his Mancoon cat Otis and he goes to try to rescue friends and family and get back to Auburn Lake Preparatory School where he thinks it might be safe and there might be more people there and he's just trying to get there. So the first book is Adrian. It's Adrian is all alone for the whole first book. And Adrian is trying to kind of explore his feelings about um, having to shoot people he knows, having to survive alone with all these zombies that are shambling and disgusting. And he starts writing on a laptop because they have a generator at the school where he ends up and he calls it Mr. Journal. And he starts documenting all of like what happens as the world slowly falls apart. And this series is not usually anything I would ever read. I am not, I'm sorry to sound like this, but I'm not usually into post-apocalyptic series written by male authors. They make a lot of the females like very stereotypical, like hide at home and cook the food and need to be rescued and, or like, they're like video game women. And Chris Philbrook does not do that. Um, I will tell you that if you get easily offended, um, I really do not like the word retarded. He uses it a lot. I will tell you the last like four books that he, in the series, he doesn't use it at all. So either the character matured to the point where he figured out that's not a good word or somebody talked to the author. I don't know. But this series is one of the most amazing character development books or series I've ever read. So Adrian starts off kind of this simple, a little self-centered guy, but he's not really that self-centered. He's always trying to help people. And it evolves into Adrian trying to help other survivors, trying to rebuild after all of these zombies are here. But the part that's interesting is, and I will not say this because it would be a complete series spoiler, but in um, when you learn why the zombies are here, what caused this outbreak, apocalypse, this outbreak, this complete you know, world crumble. And it is not the normal, like somebody accidentally released a virus. I can't wait for you guys to read it and watch as Adrian goes from a kind of simple on the surface, self-centered person 
to a very developed, very multifaceted, very interesting character. And Chris Philbrook does a very good job of building side characters. And really in all of the books, now there are some little short stories that are a part of the books, but most of it is just Adrian's impressions. So you get to watch these side characters develop, but through Adrian's writing, not so much through reading about the characters like in the first person or, or, you know, it's, it's all Adrian's impressions, but this series is amazing. And I just finished book 12 today and my heart is cleft in twain. I will tell you (laughs) as the series goes on, the zombies get creepier and creepier. The reason why this happened gets creepier and creepier. And he just keeps peeling layers like an onion. It's a series that you could probably write 20 books about and I would not be bored and I would be scared. And I was trying to read the book the other day while I was out brushing my dog out on the, on my back deck. And I got scared and had to come inside and finish brushing him <laughs> inside and then vacuum because it was, I got so scared because not only, not only are the zombies nasty, they are completely silent. They don't make any noise. They're, they literally, so he cannot, he has to always be on the lookout, but he can't hear anything. So like he has to use his sense of smell because they smell rotten and he has to use his, his vision. But like, I mean, if we were blind in the apocalypse and these were the zombies, we would be in a world of trouble because we couldn't see them coming and we can't hear them coming. So it was very terrifying to me. And one of the reasons why I scampered in off the deck. (laughs) I'm always pretty sure that we will be doomed in the apocalypse. I don't know. I I try to think all the time of ways to be useful so they don't leave us behind for bait. Yeah. (laughs) If you want to read a really compelling zombie series, as long as you can look past some of the words I don't like, like retarded, then pick up Adrian's Undead Diary. The first book is Dark Recollections by Chris Philbrook. You will not be sad. Well, you, might, you might be sad be frightened. if you're a blind person who right. will die in the apocalypse. Then you might be sad. Well, you might die in his apocalypse. But if you had Adrian there, you might make it because he was he's a pretty good... Uh, He's a pretty good dude to have around in the apocalypse. So many creepity books. But we have come to the end of the creepy books episode for this year. Thank you to Stacy and Sarah for working hard to find the creepiest of creepy books this time around. Thanks, as always, goes out to Christine for all of her fantastic editing. And of course, we thank each and every one of you for joining us each week as we talk about great and sometimes creepy books. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, It kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. 
So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody. Thank you.